we are in our dialogue with regard to the wrath of God. And this morning we're going to look at how the wrath of God is displayed. But before we do that, we need to back up all the way back to the 16th verse real quickly, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And remember, the gospel is God's good news. I'm not ashamed of God's good news. He says, because it is the power of God to transform lives. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And Paul understands it. His own life has been transformed. He's seen people's lives dramatically changed and transformed. And he knows the power of the good news of God. He's not ashamed of it. He's going to preach it. He knows that people need to hear it. And if they believe it, their lives will be radically changed. And so he is going to begin to dialogue and talk to us about the good news. But before he can do that... He needs to set the stage for it by telling us that there's some bad news. Don't you always want to hear the, if you're going to hear bad news and good news, don't you want to hear the bad news first and then the good news? I do. And that's what Paul does. He sets up for us the bad news. He says there's bad news. In the 18th verse, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's wrath is being, and in the Greek it says, continually revealed. All the time, God's wrath is being revealed. And we're going to see this morning how that wrath is being revealed. He said, since what may be known about God is plain to men or literally, plain in them. God has put an internal witness in men that he lives, that he exists. There is a God. Then he goes on and says, because he's made it plain to men. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made. He says, so that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself through creation. He's put an internal witness in men's hearts to his existence. And that when men at the great judgment throne of God, they stand there. There's no excuse. They can't say, I didn't know. God says, you're without excuse. God himself himself says this through the Apostle Paul, that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself. The issue is now, what do men do with this revelation? If you you see God in, in nature and creation, and you put your faith in him, and you begin to seek after him and to know him, the little bit of light that he gives you, he'll give you more light. And he'll give you more light. But that's not what happens. Paul says, although they knew God, they knew him experientially. We saw that with Israel. Israel knew God. They saw his glory lead them through the wilderness. They saw the glory of God dwell in the tabernacle. 
They knew the power of God. They saw his mighty deliverance and his, his incredible provisions for them. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks, and their thinking became futile. But it doesn't stop there. Their thinking becomes futile. They, they resort to empty speculating about what's true. They've rejected God. They've cut themselves off from the source of life and truth. And they are now in empty speculating about what's true. And their foolish hearts are darkened. We see all around us people who are rejecting God. The God of the Bible. There are people who, who believe in God, but a God of their own design. We'll see this. But they reject the God of the Bible. And because they do so, there's this, this sense in them, this gnawing emptiness, this darkness that is unfulfilled. And they rush about to all sorts of different philosophies and, and programs and religions and, and, and other things in this incessant search to fill this void in them, this darkness. The sad thing is that there are many Christians who are dark. Many Christians who have turned away from Jesus, the God of the Bible. Oh, they pay lip service to him. They say, I love the Lord. But they've turned away from him. And they've gone after idols. They've gone after the things of this world and, and the cares of this world. They're searching out their fulfillment and their, and their sense of worth and value and significance and self-esteem and all this other stuff and what the world offers. I need this to be somebody. I need that to be valuable. I need this person to be loved. I need da-da-da-da-da. The Bible says all we need is Jesus. And I see too many Christians who are dark inside. Too many Christians who are not spending the time in the Word and studying it and knowing it. That they might know the truth. And they're off speculating. And as a result, their, their lives are empty. Frustrated. Lonely. Christianity doesn't work. They're turned away from God. They neither glorify Him as God nor give thanks. Their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened, Paul says. We see the slide. We see man going downhill. And though man's in the darkness, Paul goes on and he says an incredible thing. He says, although they claim to be wise, they become fools. They've literally become morons. That's what the Greek word is. They become morons. And isn't it moronic to be in the darkness and say that the darkness is light? To be absolutely alone and fragmented and afraid and say, I've got the truth. I've got the answer. And still be unfulfilled. That's moronic. And yet there are millions of people living their lives that way every day, today. And again, Paul says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And he says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. 
birds, animals, and bugs. People worship bugs even in many cultures even today. Amongst other things. Do you know that man has put the most preposterous things in the place of God in their life? That people worship rock stars. They worship movie stars. They worship money. They worship their car. They worship anything material that will give them temporary ego gratification and identification. People have put the most preposterous things in the place of God. Man has descended to religion from a relationship with God to false religions, foolishness. God has revealed himself. Man has rejected God. He rationalizes himself. He says, oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. And all the time he's empty and lost. And because he has this incredible need in him to worship, that God has put there. He worships, but he worships things of his own design. He worships a God that won't make too many demands on him. A God that he can live comfortably with. A God who is easy to manage. A God who at the end of the day he can put on the shelf and say, thank you. That's religion. But you see, that's why J.B. Phillips' book is so good, because it blows all of our categories and helps us to see God that, as the kind of God that we can't manage. That we must bow down in worship. We must stand in awe of. As created beings. And yet Paul says that man has degenerated to religion. False religions. That's not man ascending trying to find God. False religions and philosophies are men running from God, Paul says. They're running from God. They've abandoned Him. And then Paul says in the 24th verse, he says, therefore, therefore, it's one of Paul's favorite words, therefore God gave them over. What does that mean? It means he abandoned them. He removed his hand of grace. He said, you want other idols? You reject me? You running after this other stuff? Go for it. God abandoned men. He removed his hand of grace. It's not a new thought. This is not something new that Paul is saying. This is, this is historical. This, this is chronicled throughout all of Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Judges is right after Joshua and right before um, Ruth. Judges, the 10th chapter. And listen to what God says. In the 11th verse, the Lord replied, 
When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites. Now these are all nations that were surrounding Israel. They were their enemies. They would make constant incursions into Israel's territory and, and smite them and attack them. When all these nations oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? Whoa. God's calling Israel to testify to the truth of how faithful he's been to them. Whatever it is that's crowding in on our lives, whatever the enemies are, whatever the attacks, God says, cry to me and I'll save you. But he's not finished. Verse 13, he says, But you have forsaken me. You have forsaken me and served other gods. And so I will no longer save you. Terrifying. Imagine Israel. Oh, wait a minute. You're no longer going to save us? God says, No, I'm giving you over. I'm abandoning you. I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and let them save you when you're in trouble. Whoa. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. That's a terrifying thought to me. That whatever I give myself over to, even as a Christian, if I'm not constantly clinging to the Lord, I have a tendency in my foolish flesh to give myself over to other gods to other sources of salvation, to other sources of meeting my personal needs. And when I give myself over to those things, God says, all right, go for it. That's what I risk. I risk him removing his hand of grace of giving me over to my foolishness. He says it to Israel. Turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, the 15th chapter. Now that's right after 1st Chronicles. Second Chronicles, the 15th chapter, verse 1. Page 453. We're told that the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. Now Azariah is a prophet. He went out to meet Asa. Asa is a king of Israel. He went out to meet Asa, and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Turn over to the 24th chapter of Second Chronicles. Just a few pages further on. Verse 20. Again, another prophet is sent to Israel. It says, When the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood before the people and he said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. Turn to Psalm 81. 
You see, this is not a new thought, is it? It's a dreaded thought, something we don't want to think about. Look at verse 11, Psalm 81. The psalmist writes, But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. And here it comes, verse 12. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. God gives men over when they turn from Him. When they seek out idolatry, when they immerse themselves in the foolishness of this world, God turns men over. He says in the sixth chapter of Genesis, prior to the flood, God says, my spirit will not strive with men forever. Then he calls Noah to build a boat because it's going to rain and rain and rain and it's going to rain some more. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Over in Hosea, the fourth chapter, the 17th verse, you don't need to turn there, let me tell you what it says. God sends Hosea, the prophet to Israel, and he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Let him go. Over in Matthew, the 14th, 15th chapter, the 14th verse, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and speaking of the Pharisees. He calls them blind guides. He says, leave them. Again, a picture of the Lord turning men over. Stephen, in his great sermon in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, when he's describing Israel's apostasy, when Moses is on the mountain and they turn to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. Make a God for us. Oh, please help us, Aaron. And they talk Aaron into making this golden calf and they bow down and worship it. Stephen says of them in the 42nd verse of the 7th chapter, but God turned away and gave them over to their worship. God turned away. The Apostle Paul, writing in the, in the, or speaking to the, to the people in Lystra, describing God to these people who don't know Him. He says to them in the 14th chapter, the 16th verse, in the past, God let all nations go their way. God will give men over. He'll remove His hand of grace. That hand of grace that restrains evil. That restrains sin. Man's sin nature. And God will remove His hand of grace. Because they've turned away from God. They've rejected Him. God will give it. Let them have it. Let them have all they want. And yet, man is not yet totally abandoned. Paul writes again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says an awesome thing. He talks about the restrainer being taken out of the world. The Holy Spirit of God being removed. And when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world totally, all hell is going to break loose. We're headed that direction right now. We're moving right toward the tribulation. Right toward the, the whole of hell belching out all of its incredible, vile evil. And the only thing that restrains that from happening 
is the Spirit, God's Spirit, dwelling in His church in this world. That when His Spirit is removed, when the church is taken out, literally all hell is going to break loose. Men are going to absolutely ravage this world. Men are going to destroy men like we have never, ever known it in the history of this world. All hell is going to break loose. You see, God's hand isn't totally removed yet. God gives men over, but He hasn't totally given them over. So man is not left without recourse. He's not totally lost yet. There's still time for men to turn. Peter writes in his first epistle about Noah. And he said, God, waiting patiently, called Noah. You know why? You know how long it took Noah to build that ark? Hundred years. A hundred years. Why did it? Do you suppose that God could have gotten Noah out of that situation quicker than a hundred years? Sure, he could have. Why does it always seem like God takes so long? Got a hundred years to build this boat. Because Peter says, God was still, though he was going to destroy man, he was still patiently waiting. He allowed Noah and his family, while they built this boat, to be a witness to their society for a hundred years. People would come into Noah's backyard and say, what are you building, Noah? A boat. <laughs> what for? It's going to rain. When? I don't know. What's rain? It hadn't rained yet on the earth, apparently. Noah said, if you don't repent, you're going to find out. In a hundred years, these people would come. They'd keep coming. They'd keep laughing, mocking, jeering at Noah and his sons for building this boat. And pretty soon the boat's done. It says that Noah and his family and all the animals went into the boat, and God closed the ark. God closed the door. God turned men over, and then he poured out his wrath on man and destroyed them. They had Noah witnessing to them for a hundred years. Is God patient? Yes. Peter says in his second epistle, the third chapter, the ninth verse, God is not willing that any man should perish, but that all men would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Interesting passage. The ninth verse of the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you don't know where we are, ask the person next to you to turn you, help you find it. Listen to Paul. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes. Really, he's, he's, the Greek says the effeminate. That's men who want to be women. Nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are the kind of people that God wants to save. These are the kind of people that God turns them over to their own wickedness. 
but he wants to save him. He abandons him. He removes his hand of grace and lets him sink so low that in the hopes that they will look up. Many of us have been in that place, haven't we? Many of us, have God has let us go, God has removed his hand, he's turned us over to our foolishness, and we have sunk so low and been so torn up that all we could do was look up and say, help me please, forgive me. Isn't that true? I was there. I was at a place in my life. I walked away from God. He talked to me. He called me. He said, pay attention. I said, sure. Okay, later. I'll do my own thing. And I was racing after all my own little gods. And then one day, he came and leveled me. But how did he level me? He leveled me through the consequences of my own foolishness. They came to bear on my life, and everything fell apart in one afternoon. And I'm a coward. I don't like pain. And I said, God, help me, please. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I see that. I see how I've rejected you, and I see where it's brought me to. And he lifted me up. And he strengthened me. And he put, put me on a new path, a new life. Many of us have been there. These are the kinds of people God wants to save. He'll turn us over till we get our fill. Do you remember the Israelites in the book of Numbers? They were sick and tired of manna. Manna was God's provision. You ever been sick and tired of God's provision for your life? We're learning like Paul to say, I'm learning to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I'm learning to be thankful no matter where I'm at. See, the Israelites were not thankful. They were not content with God's provision of manna to feed them in the desert. So they began to murmur. They began to grumble and whine and complain. And they said, we want meat, Moses. Go tell God. I would, uh, poor Moses. You know, Moses goes to God and says, God, the people aren't happy. Well, aren't they happy with Moses? Man, what do they want, Moses? They want meat, Lord. They want meat, huh? All right, I'll give them meat. I'll give them so much meat, they'll be sick of it. I'll give them so much meat, they'll vomit it out. It'll come out their nostrils. I'll give them so much meat. That's what he says. Read the passage of Numbers. It's incredible. It's just me. You go, yeah, I don't want any meat. <laughs> and then Moses goes on to record for us that what God does is he causes for a whole solid month quail to be rained down on the land. He says, for as far as the eye could see, three feet deep was nothing but quail. <laughs> kind of get the idea of God giving them over? The Bible says in another place, if you want to believe a lie, if you want to believe a delusion, God will send the deluding spirit to make sure you believe it. That terrifies me. That makes me want to cling to him ever more closely. Oh, God, don't let me get far from you. Do you remember uh, uh, when uh, Samuel anointed King Saul back in uh, 1 Samuel? And then over in 2 Samuel, we see that there's a passage, uh, let's see, I, I wrote it down here. Let me give you the reference. You can look it up later. It's, uh, no, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. We're told that the Spirit of God left Saul. Now, this made a tremendous imprint on David, the next king. 
And you remember when David sinned, committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he tried to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah murdered, and then God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David? David's caught dead. Over in the 51st Psalm is David's repentant prayer. And he remembers how Saul had sinned against God and how God had taken away his spirit from Saul. David remembers that, and David cries out, and he says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God, please don't remove your hand of grace from my life. Now, I believe David truly repented. And I also believe that God did not remove his hand of grace and protection. He did not give David over. But then if you follow the rest of David's life, David's life goes downhill, his whole family falls apart. Why was that? I believe it's because David didn't receive God's forgiveness. God forgave him. But David didn't receive it. He was immobilized in his own personal guilt. And he would not receive the forgiveness of God, and his whole life went downhill from then on. God forgave him. But you see the tremendous impact on David's life, and he cries out, he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't depart from me. Don't give me over. And God didn't. But David couldn't believe it. God's wrath is being revealed through consequences. Through the consequences of our life and our actions. He doesn't have to open the heavens. He doesn't have to send a, a, a horrible cataclysmic event to judge men. I was reading an article this last week. I read it months ago, but I drug it out and was rereading it this week. It was written by Chuck Colson. And he was quoting Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And she may, had made an off-the-cuff remark at one point, And she had said, if, if God does not judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't need to wipe America out by nuclear warfare or calling fire out of the heavens or some terrible cataclysmic event. God's judging America right now. Can't you see it? People have turned away from God and they're, they're turning to their own gods and their own idols and their own ways. Every man is doing what's right in his own sight. When you turn away from God, you turn away from any kind of moral standard. You turn away from principles and truth and righteousness. And every man does as he pleases. And there's consequences to that. And God is turning men over to their consequences of their own choices. That's how his wrath is being revealed daily from heaven. God's just turning men over. But specifically, oh, here's a thought. I was watching a, a show on Channel 28 uh, last I have a pharmaceutical and a chemical background, medical background. And so I understand a lot of what's going on in that, in that field, in that, in that area of study. So it was very interesting to me. And while the whole time I was thinking, wow, that's great. Look at that research. Look at how much progress they're making. In the midst of all that, this incredible thought permeated my thinking. And I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're working furiously to eliminate what? the consequence of our sin. I screamed at the TV and I said, why isn't somebody saying 
abstinence. Why isn't somebody yelling, behave yourselves, instead of saying, have safe sex? God is abandoning us to the consequences of our choices, and here we are, we're furiously working to eliminate those consequences. If you can eliminate VD, then everybody can have all the fun they want. I'm incredibly, incredibly saddened how they're working furiously to get birth control into the grade schools now. They're not teaching morality. They're not teaching a standard. They've gotten far away from God. And they're saying, let's have health clinics where we can dispense birth control to these infant children to prevent pregnancy. God, I hope that you hear what I'm saying about this. Instead of standing up for what's right and pure, and true, we're trying to eliminate the, the consequences rather than going to the source and cut out the source this degenerate society we're living in. Paul says that God has given men over in the sinful desires of their own hearts to sexual impurity. That's where he says it all goes to. It all ends up in sexual impurity. He gives men over to the, to the sinful desires, the, the cravings, the desires, the hungers of their life. He gives them over to them. You want that? Go for it. It's not just a matter of God turning his back and walking away. It's a matter of God actively pouring out his wrath, letting us experience the consequences of this foolishness. Because we turn away from him. Man is evil by nature. He is not good by nature. Sociologists and psychologists and all these wonderful philosophers want to tell us that man is good, basically good. They, they point to a little baby. Look at this baby is good, sweet, innocent. We want to cuddle it and hold it and love it. Oh, isn't it precious? But what they don't know is that there's a sin nature inside that baby that is going to grow up and is going to evidence itself, and it doesn't take very long. How many are familiar with the terrible twos? When that sin nature begins to evidence itself. No! Nobody had to teach that child to say no. Did you ever notice that? That child knows how to say no automatically. No. That's the sin nature. That's the vile heart inside of man. That's why people have to be born again, given a brand new nature. You can't just whitewash the old nature with morality. Man has to be changed from the inside. He has to be given a new heart, says Jeremiah. And Jesus says, you must be born again. Must be. Man is by evil, by, by nature evil. Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, the 9th verse, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully sick. And Jesus, in the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel, starting at the 20th verse, he's talking about what defiles a man. He's in a debate with the Pharisees, and he says, it's not what goes in a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his heart. He says he's wicked inside. 
And out of him come all sort of greed and immorality and vile, disgusting things. Outside of him. Man is not good. Not by nature. And man's sinful nature expresses itself primarily, primarily in sexual immorality. Oh, there are other sensualities. There are other ways that man expresses his sin nature. But primarily, when man is involved in idolatry, you follow very closely on with immorality. Man turns away from God, and he fills his life up with sexual immorality, be it just in his thought life or as it works out in his physical being. Adultery, we live in a fornicative society. It means when people are sleeping with people with no regard. Homosexuality, we're going to talk about that probably next week or the week after, what the Bible says about homosexuality, by the way. Pornography, the pornography industry in this country is incredible. Do you know that finally Ed Meese has come out and he said he's going to support that commission on pornography and their recommendations? Praise God. He got over 90,000 letters from people saying, you best get on this thing. And yet there's a whole section of our country that are making fun and talking about, well, we're going to be Puritans and, you know, we're just going to be all missionaries and you can only have sex in the safe missionary way. They're sick people. The church needs to rise up and say, hey, let's stand for what's right. And, and it has to ha happen in our lives first, doesn't it? Before we can take the log out of somebody else's eye or the speck out of somebody else's, we've got to take the log out of our own eye. Paul continues on, and he says that, that we're given over in the sinful desires of our heart to sexual impurity. Look, for what? For the degrading of our bodies. For the degrading of our bodies. He says in 1 Thessalonians that the body is not made for impurity. The body is made for the Lord. Amen. It's made for the Lord. He says in Corinthians that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The whole time when God created men, he made, his intention was for, for himself to dwell within men. The body is made for God. It's not made for immorality. And do you know what we do as human beings? We get off into immorality, we start degrading ourselves, and we start degrading somebody else. We start treating each other as objects. We reduce one another to animal status. You say, but sex is beautiful. Sure, it's beautiful. In the context of marriage, no place else. Any place else outside of marriage, sex is impure and degrades you. That's what God says. If you argue with it, you're arguing with God. Don't argue with me. It's God's word. I'm hiding behind God. Isn't it convenient to hide behind God? That's what we're supposed to be. And yet the argument comes forward, well, you know, isn't sex just a biological function? I mean, you know, boys and girls, men and women, don't they, aren't you supposed to kind of get together and do it? Yeah, when you're married. The Corinthians had a saying. And you can read it in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. You don't need to turn there, 13th verse. You can look it up later. 
their saying was this, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. That was their way of saying, well, it's all just biology. No biggie. It's all just biology. Food's made for the stomach, and the stomach is made for food. That's as simple as it. That's all there is to it. And so when anyone would come and try to talk to them about morality, the Corinthians would say, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. I don't want to hear anything about morality. And of course, you know the Corinthians were horribly immoral. That's the same thing as people are saying today. They're saying, food for the stomach, stomach for food. It's all just biology, isn't it? It's just a biological function. If you feel the urge, go ahead. When those hormones start flowing, do it. Go for it. Why not? Have it your way. Isn't that a snappy little slogan? Maybe we'll have it on a t-shirt. It's already a slogan, isn't it? Sell hamburgers that way. We live in a society, I tell you, that flaunts and exploits the bodily, the body incredibly. I am sick and tired of seeing billboards selling milk with a body. Everybody needs milk. And what do they put up there? A 40-foot female. Now I understand they have some men up there now, half naked too, for the women. To sell milk. Why? Because they understand, the advertisers, the, the researchers, they know that if they can associate their product with sex, with the body, which we're consumed with, if they can get us to associate those two things in our mind, we'll buy their product, and they're, tri- they're right. Do you know that when the milk industry started that advertising campaign associating milk with sex and the body, that the, that the milk sales skyrocketed? Skyrocketed. Milk's one of the worst foods for us, too. (laughs) Dumb. You can't turn on the TV, you can't go to a movie, you can't open up a magazine without seeing sex. If I see another advertisement for jeans, I'm going to go crazy. Another beer advertisement with some girl wagging her little bottom and some little short off, cut off jeans. Drive me crazy. It's sin. And this society flaunts the body and so uses the body to, to degrade this body that was made to glorify God. Horrible, isn't it? Absolutely horrible. But, you know, it's only biology. No big deal. They exchange the truth of God for the lie. What's the lie? Simple. God's not God. You don't have to worship Him. You don't have to obey Him. You don't have to glorify Him. Man is good. Man can set his own criteria. That's the lie. It's the same lie that Satan has been selling since the garden. He said to the woman, you don't have to trust God. God knows the day you eat that fruit. God knows the day you obey him. That's the day you become like him. That's the same lie, isn't it? God's holding out on us. You ought to be able to just go for it and have what you want when you want it. 
No restraints. And that whole process is man exchanges the truth and the glory of God for a lie and he starts worshiping created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Paul says that's the day that God turns man over. The sad thing is that it's in the church. It's in the church. There are people in the church who are just as empty, just as hurting, who have chosen to isolate out areas of their life where they're going to live them according to their own designs where they are not absolutely, totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole soul, with your whole strength. No reservations. To the glory of God forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we cry out to you. Father, in your infinite mercy and grace, Lord, I pray that you would show us those areas of our lives as Christians. We who call upon you and are called by your name. Lord, show us this morning, please. Don't let us leave this building until you've given us visibility of of those areas in our life that we are idolizing that we have not yet surrendered to you. Lord, those areas of our life that we are holding out on, Lord, forgive us. Jesus, Jesus, we long to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. That you be the sole source of everything in our life. And then we can wholeheartedly say, thank you. That we be filled by you, Lord. That we don't seek this filling by any other person, any other thing in this world. Lord, raise this church up even more powerfully than you have in the past to testify of your great glory. Lord, this great people that you've gathered together I pray, we all pray, that you would stir us up, Lord, to communicate to the people around us who are perishing that your wrath is being revealed. And yet, Lord, that they can still yet be saved. Lord, we praise your name. I don't know, but there be somebody here this morning that that these very verses are talking to you. They describe your life, that you have turned away from God, that you've known him, you've known he's there, and yet in your own pride and foolishness you've turned away and, and you've been deceived and you've deceived others. You've lied. Maybe you've been involved in immorality. God is calling you to turn back. Turn back and be saved from the wrath to come let alone the wrath that's being revealed in your life today, the seeds of destruction you're sowing today. And I want to pray with you. I want to pray a prayer and have you pray along with me, a prayer of commitment on your part, submission. God, I'm giving you my life. Forgive me. I acknowledge that I've ignored you and turned away and gone my own way and served other gods. I ask you not to remove your hand of grace from me. Save me while there's yet still time. Now, if you've reached a place in your life and you know 
you know that God's been talking to your heart. Not my words, but God has been talking to you. Then I want to invite you to stand as a testimony. As a testimony to your submission to the Lord, giving your life to Him. I know there's some people here this morning that need to. I'm just not sure if you're ready, if you're willing. There's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Keep praying, Christians. Every one of you are standing. Are you serious? Are you absolutely serious? Don't stand if you're not serious. Anybody else? You're committing your way to the Lord. He's shown you the idols. You've torn them down. You're saying, Lord, I love you with my whole heart. Some of you are Christians. Some of you are not. Some of you are just becoming Christians this morning. One more. Praise God. Anybody else? Pray this prayer now. Make this your prayer. God, I am standing before you and this congregation as a testimony, Lord, that I have walked away from you, but Lord, I have come back. And Lord, I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't ask you to change the circumstances. I ask you to change me inside that I be a person who is thankful and trusting and waiting on you no matter what. Lord, I give my whole life to you. I surrender to you this morning. And I praise you. I worship you. And I glorify you with my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the family. <laughs>